I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast. It is December, and I am once again here to ask you to support the Cato Daily Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute by becoming a podcast sponsor. If you support Cato to the tune of $1,000 or more, I'll gladly give you a shout-out on the podcast. The way to do it is to visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and make your donation. If you prefer, you may designate someone to receive the benefits associated with a donation of any amount. It's up to you. Cato accepts no government money, and we depend on the generosity of our sponsors to help us advance the values of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and support the Cato Daily Podcast and the Cato Institute. Thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, December 26, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. If history is any guide, some of the greatest contributions we can name were developed and advanced by marginal groups. Anthony Kamegna is assistant editor for intellectual history at libertarianism.org. We spoke about the English Civil War and how on both sides of the Atlantic, marginalized people had the bravery and audacity to help us all achieve a greater understanding of freedom. One of the first confrontations I had uh, about history was, uh, you know, I, I spoke recently with Michael Duma about uh, creative historical thinking and what is classical liberal history. And it, at least in the, the early period of uh, the United States or just prior to the United States uh, existing, um, obviously there were a lot of federalist writings. Um, but it was not until I came to uh, study uh, classical liberalism more specifically that I realized, oh, right, there's this other giant uh, catalog of anti-federalist uh, writings, people who, had, who thought in, in many ways that a small government, uh, small central federal government was just, a, just too big and just too powerful. And uh, once you understand that the way that history has been presented to you probably isn't fundamentally fair to the groups who, in a sense, lost, um, that it's, it's really easy to just sort of wipe away the contributions of those people to uh, the great things that we can appreciate about the world today. And in a, in a book that you're working on, uh, you take us back to the 1600s. Of, of groups of people who were marginal uh, and yet had enormous contributions. Yeah, so we're working on another one of our reader volumes on the English Revolution. And I realized while I was going through it that it's more or less a volume that collects some of the best documents from different what's called English dissenting traditions. Um, and during the time of the English Civil Wars, so this is, say, from about 1639, uh, depending on your dating, to uh, the early 1660s, again, depending on your dating, um, when the English overthrew their king and they established parliamentary supremacy, they put Oliver Cromwell up as so-called Lord Protector, which was in effect a uh, replacement of the king with the consent of parliament. And that was a failure and collapsed after Cromwell died and the parliament broke down and reinvited uh, King Charles II uh, back to the throne after they killed his father. 
So that's the long and the short story of the English Civil Wars. Uh, but between that, say, 20-year period, there is an explosion of different minority religious factions, especially these dissenting traditions. Um, and each one of them is relatively small. Uh, some of them grow to pretty large movements. Others remain very, very tiny. But each one of them has some sort of profound impact on their communities and on the country at large. And then through the revolution, uh, the entire uh, Atlantic world and everywhere the, the British Empire touched soil, uh, some of these dissenting traditions took root there. Were these all religious? I, I can imagine that some of them were purely uh, rights-based or uh, under, appreciating that the king was not recognizing some view of rights. I'd say they grew out of you know parts of it that were more strictly political, like let's say the levelers. Uh, or Which even, I think I think some libertarians would be pretty familiar with the fact that yeah. the levelers. Yeah, we, we very often hear people say that they're the first good representation of modern libertarianism. Obviously, it's not the same thing as our libertarianism today. Um, but you read the levelers and you definitely feel like these are our people um, in a way that you don't necessarily see that in other groups further back. And it's, it's like it's almost a Lockean view of uh, rights. Uh, kind of. The levelers are – I mean they're, they're a little different. Like they, they do anticipate a lot of what John Locke says but so did a lot of other people. I mean Locke in his way was not very original. He was looking around at the things that were already going on in the new world and seeing how these people were already developing their societies from the state of nature. And he just took the ideas from people who were already practicing them. So there are – you know, there's a whole – list of these different kind of groups of people. Can you tell me about the overlap in terms of what they were advocating? Because I know I know Quakers play uh, uh, some role here a little later, but mm. um, what were what were some of the big areas where these people essentially all agreed? Well, so <laughs> before we talk about their agreements, let me just go over. <laughs> if you look at Wikipedia, here's the list they give of all the different dissenting traditions. And this is not at all exhaustive. There are a lot more than than this. Anabaptists, Barrowists, Beemanists, Brownists, Diggers, Enthusiasts, Familists, Fifth Monarchists, Grindletonians, Levelers, Muggletonians, Puritans, Philadelphians, Quakers, Ranters, Sabbatarians, and Seekers. Like I said, there are a lot more, and they're each distinctive in their own ways. But the thing that largely united them was what's called antinomianism. And antinomianism, as one of my professors said, uh, is a, a heresy within a heresy. So Protestantism is already a heresy as far as the Catholic Church is concerned, right? Um, and then within Protestantism, there's this other heresy called antinomianism from the Greek words for something like against laws. Um, the antinomians thought that the Catholics had religion uh, all wrong because they believed in what's called a doctrine of works. Um, that to fulfill your covenant with God, you have to perform good works here on earth, including the sacraments of the church. And once you fulfill enough good works, you can tick off all the boxes to get into heaven. And uh, Protestants were supposed to believe in what's called the doctrine of faith, um, which says that, you know, going back to Augustine, of course, Martin Luther, all you really need for salvation is faith. Uh, salvation through faith alone. It's another phrase you'll hear. 
And the antinomians took this to the logical extreme that human beings, we don't actually have to follow man-made laws. All we have to do is have faith in God and follow our own moral intuitions, and that's enough for salvation. And since salvation is really all that matters, you know, the, the health and well-being of your eternal soul, uh, you don't have to follow any laws made here on earth that seem to contradict God's will. So it's a render unto Caesar kind of thing. Um, no, it's, it's a, you know, screw off Caesar. And actually in, in uh, Massachusetts, colonial Massachusetts, this is what got Anne Hutchinson expelled from the colony. Uh, because she started saying that people don't have to uh, sign up for militia service, compulsory militia service, to fight land-grabbing wars against the Indians uh, and exterminate these people. They don't have to do that if they don't want to. They can ignore the colony's laws, ignore the governor. And so the governor rounded her up and put her on trial, shipped her out of the colony. And uh, they started banishing antinomians left and right. And they all went to Rhode Island. And as I like to tell students, it's not as though Rhode Island is a giant smoking hole in the ground, you know. It, it actually is a pretty good basis for society to, to have this antinomian idea that we simply have to treat each other right because that is what God is commanding us in our hearts. So, you know, the way, uh, as I understand, a lot of uh, at least Christians in modern America operate and, and a lot of modern Christians view, they view government as... Uh, legitimate in the eyes of God. Mm, mm -hmm. And that seems to go directly against this antinomian view. Yeah, the antinomian view is that um, human institutions are only legitimate if your direct individual connection to God says that they are. And they can't compel you against your will to do anything that, you know, your moral intuition says is wrong. So logically... I'm thinking, oh, I'm hearing a lot of echoes of my people, the mm -hmm. Quakers, in in this in that particular view that there is that your relationship to God is the most important thing, and uh, that everything else is at best secondary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and uh, you know, imagine. Okay, so here's the scene in the the English Civil Wars. You know the. The king and the parliament start out fighting each other. It's basically about money. It's about power between the two. Um, the parliament has the upper hand. They capture the king outside of London. Uh, he's a prisoner. The parliament meets at, at a small town called Putney outside of London. Um, there's a meeting of you know the, the New Model Army, Cromwell and his grandes in the parliament, his leaders of the New Model Army. And the army uh, elects its own officers called the agitators to present the average rank-and-file servicemen's opinions before the parliament, right? So they elect um, the people who, who become known as the levelers, uh, elect these agitators from the, the ranks of the new model army. First, let's be, let's, let's take a moment and appreciate <laughs> the concept of electing agitators. Yeah. 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 And the agitators go up and the levelers are, some people look at them as the first proper political party. And they were eventually uh, or essentially emerged from the ranks of the new model army and people in parliament who held to this antinomian idea. 
So the levelers go up to, to Cromwell and right in his face in the debates at Putney, uh, tell him that we want to destroy the House of Lords and get rid of their powers and privileges. Uh, we want to elevate the House of Commons. We want to extend suffrage to many more people. We want to break down the great estates that were handed down to the aristocracy from, you know, the the uh, William the Bastard, the Norman pirate who invaded England and set up his own throne there. Uh, and, you know, all these land claims are illegitimate. So we need to revise our history. We need to revise our laws. We need to go back and recover all of these ancient liberties that we've lost to the modern state in the last 600 years. You know, that was their, that was their argument. And um, it was extraordinarily powerful and it really spoke to people, but it was very dangerous. And so parliament, uh, the Cromwellians really cracked down. They um, uh, murder several of the levelers' leaders, including Colonel Rainsborough, um, who spoke for them the most uh, at Putney. And a lot of the levelers uh, disperse into some of these other um, reform movements, including uh, Quakerism. And <clears throat> you have people like uh, Jared Winstanley, who was one of the diggers or the true levelers who were sort of communistic uh, in, in their methods. But, you know, you have all these, these levelers with this antinomian idea who are dispersed to, to find themselves as members of different movements, right? Because they, they can't come together like they were uh, after parliament turns against them. So you see people uh, doing what's called uh, seeking so this is where seekers would go out onto the street like, uh, wasn't it Diogenes of Sinope or something in ancient Greece who would walk around with a lantern looking for an honest man in the streets of Greece. And they would do the same thing. They would go out in the streets and seek for honest Christians. Um, and <laughs> there's, they would write these bizarre tracts like this, this pamphlet called Tyranipocrite Discovered um, by an anonymous author who's talking about uh, how... Um, the, the devil marries his daughter's tyranny and hypocrisy uh, with worldly princes to create the tyrannies that rule over us. Uh, and he calls princes, you know, the children of, of tyranny and hypocrisy. Um, and then you have the ranters, people like Abizer Kopp, who wrote another pamphlet called The Fiery Flying Roll. And these, he's basically just yelling at everyone yelling at everyone who will listen, at everyone who will read, and telling them what's wrong with them and what's right about the people that they criticize, right? So in both of these tracks, you have this, this push and pull between what, um, I think it's in Tyranit, Tyranipocrite Discovered, he talks about white devils and black devils. Uh, black devils are people like gamblers and thieves and drunks and you know drug addicts and prostitutes, sex workers, um, people who commit regular sins that we think of as sins. And then there are the white devils who do all that stuff too, but lie about it and pretend moral supremacy and act like they should have the right to rule over the rest of us and criticize our normal black sinning behavior. Like Bill Cosby writing a book about marriage. Yeah, exactly. Or I mean, there are all sorts of modern day examples that you could pull out of these white devils, but they're everywhere. And I don't mean to sound like Farrakhan here, but you know, <laughs> the point is everyone is a black devil. We're all sinners. 
And so you should do what Jesus told us to do and spend time with the sinners, right? And get to know them, understand their, their troubles, their plights, uh, and rant about the death and destruction of the ruling class who refuses to address the needs of the people. So you, you, you are talking about all these groups that existed <laughs> within a time period where uh, there was, was there a, a, I should say, a vacuum in government with respect to th these groups' ability to effectively connect with one another and uh, preach whatever they were preaching or, or engage in the kinds of activities that seem extremely uh, uh, anti-government. Yeah, the, the revolution, like uh, historian Christopher Hill, Marxist historian, but a very brilliant historian, um, he wrote about it as the world turned upside down and uh, people at the time recognized it as such. They sang songs about it, how everything was, was changing and people from below had chances that they'd never had before to, to change the world uh, and to really make it stick too. You know, that's the great thing about each one of these, these little groups. Everything that they published, it, it stuck. It stuck around. And there were censorship laws. There were, there were uh, boards who were supposed to check these sorts of things. And these people got thrown in prison and they got tortured for their beliefs too. But their printed materials survive. You know, they, they got out there and they stuck around and they changed the landscape for good. And um, how do, where do we see echoes of this? Uh, either today or in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. Yeah, the, the echoes are all over. So like I said, you know, this was really an Atlantic-wide thing. And this is the, the, the fact that it was in the middle of the revolution meant that uh, – and, and these people were in the New Model Army. They're in the Navy. They're talking to working people everywhere. You know, this is a highly interconnected world already at this time in the 1640s. Um, the colonies are developing very quickly and quickly producing much, much more money. Slavery is becoming entrenched uh, and much more important. The slave trade is much more important. And these ideas carry literally all over the planet with these people as they're going to take part in one part or other of the military conflict or the necessary trade going on or the colonization and settlement afterward. So just by virtue of the way the world was changing at this time on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, there are uh, opportunities to spread ideas that, uh, you know, was there, was there more fertile ground, relatively speaking, for these kinds of ideas to take root? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the, the power vacuum is everywhere, especially like the political history of the colonies during the revolution is a mess. Because you have royalist governors in some colonies who, you know, r refuse to leave and parliament sends the navy and they have to capitulate and the parliamentary guy gets put in and then, you know, the royalist forces take the upper hand and they regroup and they send back their – I mean it's a mess. It's a mess. Um, and all along the way, people on the margins can actually build something for once, you know, because the ruling classes are distracted killing each other. Um, and people are voicing these new ideas without nearly as much official opposition as they were used to uh, or official oversight. It was still there and the ruling classes did as much as they could to, to try to force some of this down, but they couldn't. So for example, after Charles II is invited uh, back to the throne in 1660, he exiles all sorts of these different dissenters and veterans of the New Model Army. 
and Cromwellian supporters, uh, he exiles them to places like Virginia. So a lot of them go to Virginia and they're indentured servants or they're poor landless people. Uh, they end up conspiring with African slaves in Gloucester County, Virginia, in what's called the Servants Plot or the Gloucester County Rebellion of 1663. Their plan was to steal from you know, local military sources, uh, steal war drums and go across the countryside raising the sound of war drums. And now that's significant because it shows that they're thinking about the Africans. They want the Africans of the colony to join with them. It doesn't matter what language you speak, everybody knows what a war drum means. And everybody in the position of being a subservient Virginian uh, would know to rise up. That's the moment to take out your master, to take out the landlord, to you know go to the city square and join everybody else. Now they were betrayed by one of their number, I, a man named Birkenhead, I think, betrayed them and for a sum of money, uh, and the colony named a holiday after him. Um, so the servants' plot failed, but the same pattern uh, continued in Virginia. A decade later, Bacon's Rebellion in 1676, uh, it was much the same. Indentured servants, poor landless people. Um, in this case, it was uh, royalists behind Bacon, um, but it was they were on the outs again <laughs> by that point. Um, and again, they joined with African slaves. And the antinomian idea remains at the heart of New England politics for a long time too. And uh, not to mention English politics itself is riddled with these, with these questions of theology and the political debates that it brings up. I mean, if, if, you're, if your religion tells you that you really absolutely don't have to follow man-made laws, then I, I mean, no kind of government can really stand against that for long, nor can they tolerate it. So we try to get to lessons from these historical episodes. Is there a clear lesson here? It, uh, you know, if, if I were to take what you've just told me and try to boil it down, I would say that uh, for at least libertarians, the lesson ought to be uh, to foster a more radical level of tolerance for weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and maybe foster some radical weirdness in yourself. Uh, and I, you know, at the very least, I think it's it's useful to study these examples and understand these very strange and very different people. I mean, you read some of these things talking about revelations and how slave masters are the beasts' armies on earth, and you know they're going through the book of revelations and breaking it off, which is a wild ride in itself. And then these Quakers are, are breaking it down and applying it to their own era. And you, you think, my God, I hear this stuff all the time on right-wing talk radio from, from callers talking about how we're in the end times. And look, we are in a revolutionary period ourselves. And there's no doubt that the world 20, 30 years from now will be entirely different from the one we know now. Uh, and I think that in times like this, it's especially important that we get a little weird and we get a little radical and a little wild and uh, at the very least, we try to take time and understand, really understand and maybe even sympathize with the views of the most marginalized people in our society because they will be the ones who have the most to say uh, and the most at stake when the world swiftly changes. 
Anthony Comegna hosts the Liberty Chronicles podcast. It is almost 2019, and I'd like to ask you to consider supporting the Cato podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute by joining our podcast sponsor program. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and learn more of the benefits of sponsorship. That's cato.org slash podcast sponsor. 